Welcome to the Bagley Wright Lecture Series on Poetry Podcast. I'm Ellen Welker, coordinator for the series. Over the next few months, we'll be sharing recordings of lectures from the Seattle series, an extension of the Bagley Wright Lecture Series on Poetry, that brought poetry readings, workshops, lectures, and other gatherings to the Seattle area from 2016 through 2018. First up is Angie Malenko's Poetry at Sea, a discussion of the paradox that for a certain strand of the poetic tradition, language is a complete conflation of the cerebral and the erotic, that it uses the bewilderment of meaning as a seduction strategy, and that this seduction is meant to tempt us to remain open to the possibility of transformation in our lives. This lecture was given September 8, 2016, at the Hugo House in Seattle, Washington. Please enjoy. This lecture was entitled At Sea. When people asked me, what are you going to talk about? Um, I said, well, I don't know. I think I'm going to talk about difficulty, difficult poetry, or what is difficult, why is it difficult, in a nutshell. But really, this, this, this is going to be wildly ranging tonight. Um, I wanted to start with the, this idea that there's a, a psychogeographical drama for me and having traveled not just across the continent, but kitty corner across the continent to speak with you tonight. There's a specificity to the two extremities, Florida and Washington. Uh, not only have I arrived at a kind of mirror image, the city that looks west at the sea instead of east, but I've departed from the swamps to the mountains and from the torrid south to the temperate north. Uh, I even um, took a hike uh, over to the Arboretum today to get the full impact of this, and it was the best thing I could have done. And I got a little hint, one day of autumn and my continual, um, my life of continual Florida summer. So I'm grateful to you for that. Um, I am reminded, this, this dovetails with this, I'm reminded of a sequence of W.H. Uh, Auden's called Bucolics, and it's separate odes to wind, wood, mountains, lakes, islands, plains, and streams. Like Auden, I think that poets have affinities with particular geographies and topologies. Some years before he wrote Bucolics, he wrote In Time of War, a series of sonnets, where he characterizes the mountain dweller as restless, searching, never fully at home. I'll read it to you. Wandering lost upon the mountains of our choice, again and again we sigh for an ancient south, for the warm, nude ages of instinctive poise, for the taste of joy in the innocent mouth. Asleep in our huts, how we dream of a part in the glorious balls of the future, each intricate maze has a plan, and the disciplined movements of the heart can follow forever and ever its harmless ways. We envy streams and houses that are sure, but we are article to error. We were never nude and calm like a great door, and never will be perfect like the fountains. We live in freedom by necessity, a mountain people dwelling among mountains but we are articled to error. That phrase catches at me. It is not Christian language, but surely there are ecclesiastical overtones. The pairing of error, E-R-R-O-R, invites a pun on air, A-I-R. Air is the air we breathe. It is simultaneously our freedom and necessity and a version of original sin. 
Doesn't it also sound like the scattering of ashes, particle to air perhaps? Fresh E-R-R-O-R and fresh A-I-R, the old word for song. We are articled to song. I'd like to ask you to bracket this poem for the time being and put it aside because I'm not going to talk about mountains or air tonight actually, but I am going to talk about the sea and being at sea. So this lecture is called At Sea. If an affinity for mountains bespeaks a nature that accepts its limitations while dreaming of elsewhere, as Auden has it, an affinity for the sea bespeaks a questing nature that risks vertigo and danger. And more so than mountains, there is a long history of poetry that finds itself by the sea. It's all over the canon from the Mediterranean to the North Sea to the Caribbean. We think of Odysseus, Ezra Pound's Middle English seafarer, Elizabeth Bishop's bite. The first true alphabet was born across the sea by Phoenician sailors to Greece, where the letters and the direction of line reading mysteriously reversed. As Marianne Moore wrote, the sea is a collector, quick to return a rapacious look. The last we see of the mythic lyricist Orpheus is his singing head floating out to sea. There is a particular agon to poetry at sea. Yet poetry and the sea are respectively also sites of pleasure and leisure. Aphrodite was born of the sea. It must give pleasure, Wallace Stevens averred of poetry. His lines from the idea of order at Key West are among the most quoted in modernist poetry. She sang beyond the genius of the sea. The water never formed to mind or voice, like a body wholly body fluttering its empty sleeves, and yet its mimic motion made constant cry, caused constantly a cry that was not ours, although we understood, inhuman, of the veritable ocean. I wish to call attention to the idiom at sea because the experience of reading poetry requires both agon and pleasure, some level of comfort with being ungrounded, gyroscopic. I don't just mean that one is rocked by meter as by waves, although I do mean that too, but it's the rhythm of a mind rushing and slowing, bobbing and bubbling that leaves us intrigued, uncomprehending, and perhaps a little seasick when we first encounter it. It is what Paul Valéry meant when he spoke of poetry as, quote, the hesitation between sound and sense, unquote, the trough between crests within which one either waits with bated breath or begins to flail. I took this for granted for many years. That is, I never questioned whether this was odd or perverse or if there was another way. I adopted a purely hedonistic view, summarized famously in Frank O'Hara's mock manifesto personism. But how can you really care if anybody gets it or gets what it means or if it improves them? Improves them for what? For death? Why hurry them along? <laughs> but then, in the course of writing criticism for many years and then teaching, I had to concede the agon as well as the pleasure. We live in a world where people major in something called communication. <laughs> Diseases are communicable. Rooms communicate. But the polyvalence of words is not what is taught in communications courses, as opposed, say, to old-fashioned rhetoric, perhaps a more honest appellation. 
Students complain that teachers present poems as puzzles to be solved, and teachers themselves simply stop teaching poetry in general literature courses because they don't feel up to the challenge. I knew a secondhand book dealer who had a shop for many years in New Orleans. When I asked him if it was dangerous, if he'd ever been robbed, he said, surprisingly, no, that petty criminals tended to stay away from books because books were the site of their first failure. It's always good to be reminded how closely the classroom is with humiliation, how closely associated the classroom is with humiliation in any subject, but perhaps language even more so. Because to a surprising degree, the native language speaker feels it is their natural possession. And so the poem you can't understand takes on the phantom aspect of a bully. Your own language just turned on you. But it is dangerous to build impregnable defenses against not understanding, not knowing, not getting it. To be all those things, to be at sea, is a place of honest beginnings. Socrates, you probably know, always began there, bewildering his interlocutors with his proclamations of ignorance. If anything, a poetry teacher should also be able to say, I don't know, or perhaps I don't know right now. Maybe it will become clearer. Maybe time is needed, time beyond the strictures of the class period. And what is a poem if not a manipulation, not of language per se, but of time? So tonight, I would like to tell three stories about poetic language. Uh, poetic language that I hope will help buoy those of us at sea, to help us be more open-ended and carefree about the condition of perplexity, to, at the very least so that we don't hurry to patch it so quickly with an understanding that may be wrong or complacent or dangerous. I want to think of poetic language in three modes, the inhuman, the foreign, and the erotic. And here a caveat, I don't mean the erotic as sexual, but in the etymological sense that Anne Carson reminds us, desire implies lack or loss. Desire is always for something that's not there. The first of these stories is bound up with what Stevens calls in the passage I just quoted, the inhuman cry. My first story then is about the inhuman language of birds which serves as an analogy for prosody, but also for our desire to populate the inanimate world with communicating beings. So, in human language. From Chaucer's Parliament of Fowls, to the English nursery rhyme Cock Robin, to the birds of the Caucasus race in Alice in Wonderland, our mythologies have paired birds and discourse. We've tried, like Walt Whitman, to imagine the words that they would sing if they knew our language, as in out of the cradle endlessly rocking. And thenceforward all summer in the sound of the sea, and at night under the full of the moon, in calmer weather, over the hoarse surging of the sea, or flitting from briar to briar by day, I saw, I heard at intervals, the remaining one, the he-bird, the solitary guest from Alabama. Blow, 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 blow up sea winds along Pominock's shore. I wait and I wait till you blow my mate to me. And we've imagined like Keats in Ode to a Nightingale that their language is immortal, transhistorical. 
The voice I hear this passing night was heard in ancient days by emperor and clown. Perhaps the self-same song that found a path through the sad heart of Ruth when, sick for home, she stood in tears amid the alien corn, the same that oft times hath charmed magic casements opening on the foam of perilous seas in fairylands forlorn. On the simplest level, as naturalists, we've just tried to hear birds as they really are. Bird calls range more widely than those of any other animal, from the air, from the ground, over bodies of water. They seem to be com communicating not only with each other, but with and from something originary, perhaps the elements themselves. In fact, birds did evolve their calls and songs by echoing the sounds of their environment, turning the ambient into the meaningful, and then mimicking one another doing it. As with humans, specific environments promote dialects. Migratory birds amalgamate a world music mix in their repertoire and their flights across continents. Urban dwellers, to overcome the habitual clamor, have shorter, faster, and higher frequency songs than their country cousins. Species that live in trees have a richer vocabulary than species that live in the open. Aquatic birds make the least complex calls. But it is difficult to hear birds in human terms. In Iris Murdoch's The Good Apprentice, one character tells another that the female owl calls gewick, gewick, while the male calls ooh, ooh. I sought it, I sought that in the glossary of a book um, called uh, Awe to Zid, The Words of Birds by John Beavis. I found it after some difficulty transcribed as kiwick attributed to the tawny owl in the lexicon for Great Britain and Northern Europe. Someone hears a G and another hears a K. This is typical, according to Beavis, for in the hundreds of years that we have been transcribing bird words into English, we have not yet arrived at any consensus. Those besotted with the subject have left us a legacy of a glorious vocabulary of thousands of unique words, according to Beavis, quote, a muddled, contentious, and inconsistent vocabulary, the harvest of the jottings of different naturalists in different places who hear differently and record differently, whose variation is boundless and consensus occasional. He goes on to compare our transcriptions of birdsong to spelling in Elizabethan times before the first dictionaries. Why is it so difficult to transcribe birdsong? For one thing, Quote, each bird may sing differently from time to time and certainly from place to place, as those city and country cousins may attest. For another, quote, no two people classify bird sounds exactly alike. Murdoch's Gewick Gewick is Beavis's Kiwick, his twin glossaries of bird transcriptions, one for North America, one for Great Britain and Northern Europe, were culled from a database compiled of single filing cards for each species of bird, noting all the transcriptions he could find. He then selected those that were, quote, most commonly agreed on by different observers, choosing the most plausible, where there were close variations, picking those that sounded right to me, discarding those that seemed unpronounceable or at odds with the consensus. The resulting lists comprised two different kinds of poetries, the da-da kind, plik, plik, plid, plid, and the descriptive lyrical kind, black-necked stilt, laughing gull, northern shoveler, oyster catcher. 
The guide to pronunciation offers precise instructions. The call of the buzzard is written mew, pew, which seems to me accurate and plausible, but I'm not sure I ever hear that initial M or P. Mew is a searching, tentative call, pew more insistent, the ricochet following a pent-up breath. To imitate them or articulate as close as we can to them, we must shape, it, we must shape an M or P with our mouths before letting go the U sound. Beavis goes on to explain the spelling conventions that he used for aw, A-A-W, black skimmer, jadit, jadit, ruby crown kinglet, and zzd, lazuli bunting. They have a method, he had a method to his madness. Our bird words may include as many adjacent repetitions as we like, and in pronunciation, we have to learn to distinguish between R, A-A-A-R-R, R, A-R-R, and A-R-R-R. Article to error, error, I, I noticed. Um, multisyllabic sounds may be written as a single word or with each component separated by a hyphen or word space. While the distinction is to some degree intuitive, there is an intention that, for example, C-C-C should be read differently from C-C-C or C-C-C, and K-R-R-R from K her K hyphen R hyphen 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 R hyphen R. <laughs> Even so, method and madness can't be completely separated. My intention is that the book can be used as a serious field guide and must be as accurate as possible. On the other hand, the idea of transcribing birdsong into human language does seem slightly absurd. Perhaps bird vocalizations and human ears are incommensurable, just as their syrinx and our larynx are different organs. This incommensurability has driven us to heights of ingenuity and perhaps depths of dementedness. We've invented bird whistles with bladders and bellows, twisting keys and slides. We've invented flagellettes and serenettes for ladies to teach their pet birds human compositions. We've outfitted clocks and boxes with songbird automata. And in 1910, the first bird song was transmitted by gramophone. German birder Karl Reich made the recording by running cables from an electric microphone in the field to a recording plant up to a mile away. Of course, the lines between absurdity, amusement, and instruction can be productively blurred. Just as bird whistles doubled as children's toys, and children's toys double as pedagogical tools, the obsession with the language of birds inspires language games that branch off into speculation or fancy. Take the list of American and British mnemonics that serves as a third kind of poetry in Beavis's book. Are you awake? Me too, great horned owl. But I do love you. Eastern Meadowlark. Cheerily, cheer up, cheerily, American Robin. Drop it, drop it, pick it up, pick it up, Brown Thrasher. Fire, fire, where, where, here, here, Indigo Bunting. Purity, 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 Bluebird. Spit and see if I care, spit, White-eyed Vario. Who cooks for you, White-winged Owl? Teacher, teacher, Great Tit. These are like reverse homophonic translations, turning phonetic nonsense into merely English nonsense. 
They seem like the beginnings of great nursery rhymes, and from there we are well on our way to poetry. From the Wasteland. Above the antique mantle was displayed as though a window gave upon the sylvan scene the change of Philomel by the barbarous king so rudely forced, yet there the nightingale filled all the desert with inviolable voice, and still she cried, and still the world pursues, jug, jug, to dirty ears. Twit, 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 jug, 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 so rudely forced, Tiriu. And here, too, I might add my own foray into the inhuman. In my poem of melting villanelles, Wingen de Koya, I touch on the extinction by hunting humans of the Carolina parakeet. Whoso lists to hunt it with a camera, the Carolina parakeet is extinct, hunted to nothing emerald, will never see the plumage which lives only in the image of citizens caught on camera and in Audubon prints. But what I would give to hear the speech of this prince, of, hunting, of hunted to nothing emerald. Did it lure the colonists inland? With what speech or song? Gone that song, a painter on the ship, not camera. White bade his shallop men sing shanties in the dark, but no one emerged from the forests of maritime emerald. The birds must have lured them inland, intelligent Carolina parakeet. Whoso lists to hunt it with a camera, hunted to nothing emerald. Thus ends my first story about the inhuman cry of birds, which serves as an analogy for prosody, but also for our desire to turn things into communicating beings. And now for my second story, uh, which is about not turning things into communicating beings, but the flip-flops between foreign language and native language, and how poetry can actually be a foreign language within the native one. And this story is more autobiographical. When I discussed the premise of this lecture with a friend, he asked me provocatively, did I perhaps like difficult work because I was a difficult child? As Larkin said, words not unkind, not untrue. I asked myself, how did I first experience being, uh, being at sea in poetry? Casting back, I recall that when I was 13 or so, I was reading secondhand college literature textbooks because I already had an idea that I wanted to be a writer. This particular textbook, I remember, I did get by the sea at a yard sale or thrift shop in Wildwood, New Jersey, where my father sent my mother and us kids for a few weeks every summer. And I think of these mid-century new critical textbooks washing up um, as the flotsam of the 1980s. <laughs> I alighted on Edward Fitzgerald's translation of Omar Khayyam's Rubiat. Something about the beauty of quatrains cascading down the page caught my eye. Uh, I snagged on this poem for a long, long car ride back to Philadelphia in the back seat of a VW van with my three younger siblings. It couldn't have been very easy to concentrate. But I remember my determination to try to piece together the syntax of sentences broken into poetic lines and my suspicion that, the, that amid the artful breakage was, as Baudelaire defined beauty, the promise of happiness. Yet for every gorgeous stanza I might have understood, like this one, I sometimes think that never blows so red the rose as where some buried Caesar bled, 
that every hyacinth the garden wears dropped in her lap from some once lovely head. There was one I could not puzzle, puzzle at all, puzzle out at all, such as this ending stanza with its synecdoche and anacoluthon. And when thyself with shining foot shall pass among the guest stars scattered on the grass, and in thy joyous errand reach the spot where I made one, turn down an empty glass. As W.G. Seaball tells us in The Rings of Saturn, Edward Fitzgerald and his siblings suffered from extreme boredom, having no friends of their age. <laughs> Gazing out of windows, the young translator would, quote, indistinctly discern over the treetops the white sails of ships off the coast 10 miles away. And then one would lose oneself in vague dreams of liberation from this childhood dungeon. The vast wealth of his family ensured that this boredom would continue into adulthood, which was one long confirmed bachelorhood. His only accomplishment was to translate 224 lines of Omar Khayyam into English verse. A year after it was published, he took to his yacht, named the Scandal, and frequently sailed out into the German Ocean wearing a white feather boa which rippled in the sea breeze. <laughs> When he died, rather than be interred in the family mausoleum, he asked that his ashes be scattered at sea, i.e. particle to air. So yes, this was an originary moment for me, difficult child, of reading poetry and being perplexed, but absorbed and attracted as well. I'm quite sure I didn't close the interval between sound and sense that day or even that year. Robert Frost once said in an interview, Words in themselves do not convey meaning, meaning, and to prove this, which may seem entirely unreasonable to anyone who does not understand the psychology of sound, let us take the example of two people who are talking on the other side of a closed door, whose voices can be heard, but whose words cannot be distinguished. Even though the words do not carry, the sound of them does, and the listener can catch the meaning of the conversation. This certainly goes a long way toward explaining why one could go on puzzling out the Rubaiyat with little comprehension. The beauty of Fitzgerald's metrical rhyming quatrains mesmerized the reader with the promise of fulfillment. Frost's example also makes me remember something. It makes me remember putting my ear to a glass, and I must have read this somewhere, Nancy Drew or something like that, um, to eavesdrop on the neighbors arguing on the other side of the wall that divided um, their, their Philadelphia row home from my grandparents. There was an enduring mystery to these arguments, a sweet torture, a rehearsal of familiar heartaches in male and female counterpoint. And thinking of my grandparents' home reminds me as well that these grandparents were refugees, then immigrants, that my own parents were immigrants, and I had spent my entire childhood with a glass against the wall that separated me from them, a linguistic glass. It's difficult to keep the story straight um, because on the one hand, I was taught to communicate with them in Portuguese before I learned English. But, so technically English is my second language, but English came only slightly later, probably, and yet, my earliest emotional associations are with Portuguese words, with the endearments they called me, which are still the tenderest to my ears. Curse words um, sound like real maledictions, um, more so than anything in English. And such elemental words as blood, sangue, uh, dirty, suja, sewing needle, aguila, 
are eerily dreamlike or oneric to me. Delmore Schwartz had this to say about being the child of immigrants. To be the child of immigrants from East Europe is in itself a special kind of experience and an important one to an author. He has heard two languages through childhood, the one spoken with ease in the streets and at school, but spoken poorly at home. Students of speech have explained certain kinds of mispronunciation in terms of this double experience of language. To an author, and to, especially to a poet, it may give a heightened sensitivity to language, a sense of idiom, and a sense of how much expresses itself through colloquialism. But it also produces in some a fear of mispronunciation, a hesitation in speech, and a sharpened focus upon the character of the parents. <laughs> um, again, that word hesitation, hesitation between sound and sense. It's possible that the wrench from Portuguese to English, or the bifurcation, sensitized me to language and thus to poetry. Or it may be something else, not the languages I knew, but the languages I didn't know. For my mother spoke Belarusian to her parents, and of course, as a tightly knit immigrant family, this was a daily habit. While my father's parents, with whom we ate dinner every Sunday, spoke Hungarian among themselves. Neither of my parents thought it would be useful or interesting to teach me these languages. Onward and upwardly mobile goes the immigrant hope. Uh, and one doesn't learn language by osmosis. So I spent much of my childhood as a kind of spy, uh, trying to decode family conversations. Throw in the Polish and Ukrainian of some of my cousins, and even the German of that, that my grandmother and my, my grandfather and my Austrian aunt would practice. And you'll get a sense of the polyglot Thanksgivings and Christmases and Easter's and birthdays I experienced. A regular buffet of language among the festive cold cuts and cheeses, pierogi and kielbasa. So around the age of 11 or 12, I undertook a serious but naive study of Russian so I could speak to my grandparents. It was to their house I fled when I felt persecuted by my parents. And uh, it was always quiet there, except for the ritual of the nightly news and the religious programs on the radio that my grandmother listened to in Polish or Ukrainian. Anyway, my grandfather was the first and only person I had ever seen who kept a notebook and pen on his person and underlined words in Newsweek in red to be looked up in a bilingual dictionary. When he learned a new word, he wrote it down in his notebook. This was a valuable example to me. Then he gave me my own bilingual dictionary, and I started to translate the children's books they had according to his method. I reproduced for you here a page of a children's book of verses, which I was attempting to translate in 1982. So I'm not going to attempt the Russian. But the translation, the translation is, and you can't see, you can't see my little pencil markings in the PDF. Uh, on the river reads, swimming there, the perch. A circle, the older. A circle, the younger. A circle, all the babies. <laughs> so this was my first passionate language crush. And off and on through life, I've had them. At various points, I've learned some and forgotten most of my Portuguese, Russian, Spanish, ancient Greek, French, and Arabic. But I've always looked for their strangeness in English poems. That is, I have preferred poems that are themselves translated into English from a foreign language also called English. I'm trying to say something like Merrill's Alice translation, 
or Valerie's Poetry is a Language Within a Language, or Proust's The Finest Books Are Written in a Kind of Foreign Language. Another thing about foreign language, one can't grow up Catholic and not be aware of religious language as a foreign language, especially when vestiges of Latin permeate Sunday Mass. When I was living in Beirut in 2010, I accepted an invitation to attend an Eastern Catholic Mass. Is that? I was told the most solemn part of the liturgy would be in Syriac, uh, a descendant of Aramaic um, and the closest thing to Jesus' own language that we have in the present day, and most of the rest of the Mass would be in Arabic, uh, classical Arabic. Um, I sat in the pew, listening intently, comprehending almost nothing, and of course I found enjoyment in this. Um, for one thing, the performance of the Mass follows a tried and true sequence introductory rites, textual readings, homily, Eucharistic rites, rendering the service transparent, even if you don't understand a word. I was genuinely awed, though, when the congregation rose to chant the Nicene Creed and later the Lord's Prayer in Arabic. It was only after Mass, when I was speaking to my hosts, that I realized it was Pentecost, the feast commemorating the descent of the Holy Spirit on the apostles manifested in their sudden marvelous ability to speak and understand foreign languages. Theologically, this was the mystical resolution to the calamity of Babel, that failed attempt to touch heaven, which caused the Lord to scatter the tribes in every direction with languages incomprehensible to one another. While I had no Pentecostal miracle to report, this occasion dovetailed with a realization that among my first true poetry experiences was the experience of prayer, being taught as a child the Hail Mary and the Lord's Prayer and being made to recite them every night by my mother. I did so for most of my childhood and even adolescence, and what child could possibly have understood what those words meant? What, for instance, is grace? What could it have meant to utter the words now and at the hour of our death? Amen. Whatever it meant, it surely prepared me for Fitzgerald's Cayenne. We are no other than a moving row of magic shadow shapes that come and go, round with the sun-illumined lantern held in midnight by the master of the show. The British psychoanalyst Adam Phillips writes, infants and young children have to be, in a certain sense, understood by their parents. But perhaps understanding is one thing we can do with each other, something peculiarly bewitching or entrancing, but also something that can be limiting, regressive, more suited to our younger selves, that can indeed be our most culturally sanctioned defense against other kinds of experience, sexuality being the obvious case in point that are not subject to understanding, or which understanding has nothing to do with, or is merely a distraction from. Here's Emily, here's, yeah, Emily Dickinson suggesting something similar. Away from home are some, and I, an immigrant to be, in a metropolis of homes is easy, possibly. The habit of a foreign sky we difficult acquire as children who remain in face the more their feet retire.
In some, I suppose I want to say, even in the coziest nest, family is foreign. It is there as a very young creature that one learns to vocalize and what's permissible to be vocalized, and by inference, what's impermissible. Decoding all this for oneself may be difficult, but what is the alternative? To be perfectly transparent to your parents and vice versa would certainly result in little art or poetry. Adam Phillips again, the dream of like-mindedness is a dream about a group of people or a couple in which the possibility of not getting it has disappeared. But there is a freedom, a freedom from the tyranny of perfection and not understanding and not being understood. All tyrannies involve the supposedly perfect understanding of someone else's needs. We can deduce from this that in small ways, poetry and being at sea is a protest against too much presumptive understanding, which forecloses on freedom. Freedom to change your mind, to experiment, to walk away, to assume other imaginative identities. Edward Fitzgerald's unhappy childhood gazing at the sea led directly, if contingently, to his translation, which meandered through time down to my child self and wombed in a VW bus with nuclear family and showed me a glimpse of a world beyond the suburban reality principle. Or, to quote these lines again from Keats, perhaps the self-same song that found a path through the sad heart of Ruth when, sick for home, she stood in tears amid the alien corn. Thus ends my second story about the dialogue between the familiar and the foreign in language, poetry, and incipiently in love, beginning with our estranging families. My third story expands on this latter idea of love. When we read a great poem, we are at sea. When we visit a foreign land, we are at sea. When we fall in love, we are at sea. These great experiences, without which I think life would hardly be worth living, uh, these three great experiences without which I think life would hardly be worth living. It is, or perhaps was, a commonplace to reduce poetry to seduction strategy. And to us high-minded types, there is no shame in an idea that goes all the way back to Sappho. But as Anne Carson reminds us in her treatise, Eris the Bittersweet, Eros seemed to Sappho at once an experience of pleasure and pain. Likewise, poetry, as I stated at the outset, the experience of it involves both pleasure and agon. It is, in Sappho's word, glucupicron, which we translate as bittersweet. Here we are on the terra infirma of paradox. Like, Dickinson, like Dickinson's The Habit of a Foreign Sky, which we read a moment ago, the bittersweet and also the present absent. Carson again, the Greek word eros denotes want, lack, desire for that which is missing. The lover wants what he does not have. I will read you um, a poem which, like the Rubiat, I loved but didn't quite understand when I first read it at age 18. And this poem is James Merrill's The Kimono. When I returned from Lover's Lane, my hair was white as snow. Joy, incomprehension, pain, I'd seen like seasons come and go. How I got home again, frozen, half dead, perhaps you know. 
You hide a smile and quote a text. Desires ungratified persist from one life to the next. Hearths we stripped ourselves beside long, long ago were exed on blueprints of consuming pride. Time out of mind, the bubble gleam to our charred level drew April back. A sudden gleam, keep talking while I change into the pattern of a stream bordered with rushes, white on blue. It was my dear ancient Greek professor in my freshman year who gave us this poem. He was a polylinguist, author of a mathematics textbook, and a great admirer of Merrill, particularly the poem Syrinx, which reproduces the quadratic equation. Not, and not only was this the only poem he was aware of that incorporated an equation, but he was fond of pointing out it scanned. The equation scanned. This poem initially promises to be a simple three uh, stanza love lyric, but in a short space, Merrill creates a slippage between metaphors that keeps us off balance on a rapid descent toward an imaginary sea. These metaphors are like acoustic baffles. Quote, hearths we stripped ourselves beside long, long ago were exed on blueprints of consuming pride. Time out of mind, the bubble gleam to our charred level drew April back. What do these sequential sentences add up to? As the bubble in the poem lists this way and that, we too find ourselves gyroscopically trying to put together the hearths and the blueprints and the pride. We try to hook that up with the level, the charred, and April. And before we can do so, the image of the kimono appears, which the title set us up for, and thus holds the clue to these fast and suddenly slow eight, 18 lines. I change into, on a prosaic level, means to dress himself in, but it has a further Ovidian meaning where the speaker changes into a stream like Arethusa in the Metamorphosis. Eris is the agent of change and departure in the Metamorphosis as it is here. The blue and the white represent turbulent water. Rushes is both the plant, also an Ovidian reference to syrinx and pan, and the pure emotion of rushing through time. Streams, replenished by rain and snowmelt, of course don't stop until they find the sea, where they sublimate into rain that falls again ad infinitum. Reincarnation of love out of ashes, hearth, heart, goes on in perpetuity. Water and fire, opposites are united in this poem of Eros as in the oxymoron bittersweet. What ends begins again. Here also the ego alternately flares and dies in Eros, consuming pride, where consuming is both verb and adjective. The ego is baffled, joy, incomprehension, pain, I'd seen like seasons come and go. So eros obliterates the ego that grasps after the thing it lacks and wants. Likewise, ego grasps at the obscure poem, demanding that its secrets be threshed out before the fullness of time. So although the kimono was presented to me as a kind of puzzle in a classroom, something that conventional American wisdom inveighs against, I nevertheless remembered it always, memorizing it almost as an amulet, a charm. And yet, this is not a love poem for Romeo and Juliet. The 18-year-old reader, myself, could not in any meaningful way relate to it, glib word, 
But it was imprinted nonetheless and recalled to the fore later as if Valerie's, quote, hesitation between sound and sense, unquote, might actually last as long as decades. And even though it is in a technical sense a closed poem, it, um, it cl closed form, it paradoxically is in the service of maintaining the most open-ended of attitudes toward love and life. In short, to offer a paradox instead of a platitude is to write the most open of forms. So given that the realm of Eros is the realm of paradox, might we not also say that the realm of poetry is the realm of paradox? The most erotic language is also the most cerebral, and the language that puts us at sea is the language that we crave and need. And before I close, I would like to remind you of Auden's poem and being articled to air. Wandering lost upon the mountains of our choice, again and again we sigh for an ancient south, for the warm, nude ages of instinctive poise, for the taste of joy in the innocent mouth. Asleep in our huts, how we dream of a part in the glorious balls of the future. Each intricate maze has a plan, and the disciplined movements of the heart can follow forever and ever its harmless ways. We envy streams and houses that are sure, but we are article to error, we were never nude and calm like a great door, and never will be perfect like the fountains. We live in freedom by necessity, a mountain people dwelling among mountains. I come back to this poem as if to suggest that, in light of the connection between Eros and Lack, we can now read this somewhat cerebral poem as language that arises from Eros, from that ancient south rhyming with mouth, that O from which both poems and kisses come. It ends on a note of stoicism, yes, but the acknowledgement of what we lose and have lost, love, is what starts us on the path to poetic insight. All this to say that these three near incommunicative modes of poetic language, the inhuman, the foreign, the erotic, are ways to confront our own imperfections, which we mostly prefer prefer to provide alibis for. This, of course, is the real difficulty, the overriding difficulty we avoid when we speak of poems as difficult. They are obscure, particularly when we, what we wish to obscure is acknowledgement of lack. We ought to acknowledge this lack. We are at sea all the time. We are lacking all the time. And what we lack is all the time. But if I adore a naughty poem, it's probably because I must traverse it very slowly as speed across water is measured in knots. And in turn, the poem proves its generosity by its capacity for being endlessly revisited. The poem is always giving me and you more time. That was Angie Malenko giving her talk, Poetry at Sea. You can read a short essay that accompanied this talk called, Oh, I Will Never Get It, Angie Malenko on Not Knowing French, at the link in the episode description. Thank you to the Hugo House for hosting this event.
The Bagley Wright Lecture Series is a nonprofit that supports contemporary poets as they explore in depth their own thinking on poetry and poetics and give a series of lectures resulting from these investigations. Lectures are delivered publicly in partnership with institutions and organizations nationwide. This podcast was produced by me, Ellen Welker. Music is I Recall by Blue Dot Sessions from the Free Music Archive. CC by NC.